0: Well, good morning. So glad to be here today. What a privilege it's been for Stan and myself and Kent to be with you the last four days. It's just been a, for me, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And we're just so glad to be here and be of some help to the entire church. And, uh, you know, we, uh, so whenever somebody speaks, you kind of need to know who they are. So I just kind of want to introduce myself to you briefly so you'll know who it is that's talking to you. My name is Mike Lundberg, and uh, I've been the pastor at Church on the Hill in Montrose, Colorado, for um, 20 years. Raise your hand if you know where Montrose, Colorado is. Good. There's several people that know where that's at. It's 60 miles south of Grand Junction, and our, our backdrop is the Great San Juan Mountains. So I love that. I'm a mountain guy. I love to climb all the mountains. So looking at all your mountain pictures back here and understand one of your members provides those for you. That's wonderful. I mean, I feel like I'm home. This is, this is great. Prior to serving as the pastor in Monterosa, I was in a little church in Hooper, Colorado for four years. And prior to that, I was a large church in Denver called Bear Valley Church. I was there while I was in seminary as the children's pastor. So that's kind of my history, a 30-year history of being a pastor. And I'm also the, the chairman of the Rocky Mountain Church Network. And in addition to that, I'm one of Stan Reeb's coaches that help him. Kent and I help him. I help on the Western Slope, and Kent helps him here in Wyoming and in uh, Montana. So it's just great to be with you folks. And I just want to say this before I get started in my sermon. You guys have a great church. You really do. We are, the entire team is so impressed by all of you. So you can feel great about yourselves and who you are as a church. As you can see a slide behind me, it shows religious affiliation. This was done by the Public Religion Research Institute in 2016, so I know you're not gonna find any of these statistics surprising. Uh, the, the red one is uh, Christian. That's 68% claim to be Christian of, of all types in America right now. This is just for America. Uh, 24%, that's the yellow. That's the relig- those that are not religiously affiliated with anything. That would be the nuns. If you heard of a nun category, N-O-N-E, that would be the nuns, not the N-U-Ns. The nuns, N-O-N-E. And then there's a real small sliver there. It's yellow. That's the Jewish. They're 2% of our population in America, the Jewish people. And the other 6%, because I couldn't get them on the graph, they're just, they're everything else. Buddhist muslim hindu and other religions they comprise six percent so my question for you today and for me is since our country still has is majority christian at least when they when the survey was conducted why is it we have so many problems why is it we're struggling so much as a country with identity we do have problems why isn't there more consistency when we when you talk about some of the social issues like, like abortion and immigration and the DACA program and struggles with energy that you guys know so well here, especially in, in northern Wyoming. I mean, why can't we come together? I mean, 68% of us are supposed to believe the same thing. And yet, just like the Roman society, we struggle. We struggle big time. And that's unfortunate. As I look at these statistics, I I don't find them surprising. And I I think the the reason is this. Even though 68% of our people claim to be Christian, they've either forgotten what it means to be a Christian, or they never knew in the first place, and yet they're still claiming to be Christian. And you know, I think it was the same way for Rome. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to some people he didn't even know. It's a wonderful letter. In fact, most people believe that the book of Romans is, is the best that Paul ever wrote. And I happen to be one of those to agree with that. At that time, Rome was about a million people. Think about that, a million people. So if you th- just go south, six hours, you think of the Denver metropolitan area. That was the size, at least population-wise, of Rome. about a million people. This surprised me in my research. There was a sizable Jewish population of either 40 to 50,000, depending on which historian you look at, 40 to 50,000 people that were Jewish in Rome. and they were sent there a lot of them were sent there after Pentecost. And you know, the, the, the scholars don't really know how the church got established there. They know we know this. The Apostle Paul did not plant the church in Rome, yet he cared for it. And as you can see as we get into this letter, he deeply loved these these Roman Christians. So the church was primarily Gentile, but they had a sizable group of Jewish Christians there. Today, we, we have lots of Jewish Christians in America. We call them Messianic Jews. One of my good friends I went to seminary with is named Chaim Erbach. He's a great Christian brother. He still has a church in Denver. In fact, he's on the adjunct faculty of Denver Seminary. What a wonderful man. And you know, we have so much in common. And I just loved Chaim. Except when he was sitting right next to me in Hebrew class. (laughs) I said, Chaim, you're going to blow the curve just right out of the water. And he said in his nice accent, I can't really do a very good Jewish accent. He said, Michael, 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 don't worry about it. It's okay. Modern Hebrew is not anything close to biblical Hebrew. He said it was okay, but you know... He was a great guy, just to remember him. So they had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians there in Rome. And, and Paul, he, I believe he totally wanted to encourage that congregation because they were a diverse group. They were living in the capital city. Think about that, the capital city of the world at that time. And they were there and had a strong Christian presence. So let's read what he said to them. We'll look at the first seven verses here. And I'll just read these for right now. You can follow along either on the screen or from your bulletin insert. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son. Who is his earthly life, who is a descendant of David. And who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for His name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul didn't know these people. How would you like to receive a letter with that kind of a greeting? I know if that was to me personally, I'd feel pretty good about that. I'd say, this guy really cares for me. But there's something more here. I want you to see it. It's in your outlines. Our faith is all about Christ. I believe the Roman Christians would have got that, and I believe that message is for us. Those first seven verses are are a typical greeting that Paul used in his his writings. I'm not going to go a lot into into this greeting and spend a lot of time on this part of the passage, but we can see in this passage that it really is all about Jesus. When you look through there, he he even identifies who Jesus is for those people. He says there in verse verse 3, regarding his son who has to his earthly life. Well, what could that mean? Well, certainly it talks about Jesus' earthly life. So why did he say regarding his son as to his earthly life? Implied is that Jesus had a non-earthly life. This is talking about the preexistence of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Jesus has always existed. He had a life before he was on this earth. He's always been around. And we know he was part of the creation process he created along with god the father and god the holy spirit so paul is establishing this right from the beginning look at verse four and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of god in power wow that's jesus he was appointed the son of god in the power of god and you know some of the people especially the first three chapters of romans we know paul was speaking to jewish christians you didn't use the term God or the Son of God very lightly around Jews unless you meant it. Because when Paul said, now this is these Jewish Christians, when they read that he said this, the Son of God, that was equating Jesus with God. We don't look at it that way as Gentiles. But for Jewish Christians, that is why, In fact, it is so holy. If you read any Jewish writings today and if they're talking about God... They don't spell it out G-O-D. In the Jewish writings, you'll see it G, hyphen, D, because they believe to even mention the name of God from a, a sinful human being like myself and like yourselves. They believe that we are not holy enough to utter that holy word. But he goes on. He goes on to say that, that he was empowered by his resurrection from the dead. That proves to us who Jesus said he was. It proves he had victory over death and victory over sin. And I want you to think about this. This is telling us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time. Don't ask me to explain it. I'm not smart enough to explain it. I can't explain that. That's something I have to take by faith. And you know, in church history, the early Christians really struggled with this. They struggled with identifying who Jesus was. And so they had a council is about the year 325 called the Council of Nicaea. In fact, when I was in, in Turkey uh, several years ago, it was, well, it was 1996, we were driving through, and the, the missionary we were with says, now, see this little town here, the name on that? And I, when we read it, I can't remember what the name was. He said, that actually, 10 miles down the road, is Nicaea. And that's where the, the council met and they wrote the Nicene Creed. And one of the lines in the Nicene Creed that Christians have been uttering for 2,000 years, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Wow. He is saying to us today and to those Roman Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, that Jesus is God and our faith is all about Jesus now notice in verse 5 it says he was given the grace he was given the gift the opportunity to become the Apostle to the Gentiles and most of us know that if we have read our New Testaments that was Paul's identity I'm the i I'm the I am the preacher to the Gentiles Peter was the preacher to the Jews but Paul was the preacher to the Gentiles and you know the story well, if you've been to Sunday school, you know the story. Paul would go into town. And he always, he always had a process. He, he first went to the synagogue, and he would, he would preach. He would teach. He'd get beat up and battered there, usually. And then he'd walk out of the synagogue and go across the street to a Gentile home. And he'd start preaching, and people came to faith in Christ. That was just kind of his normal mode. I remember when my wife was teaching... Second, no, the two-year-olds at Bear Valley Church way back when I was in seminary. They had a, a segment on the travels of the Apostle Paul. So she's inviting all her kids into her class. one little boy says, Mrs. Lundberg. Mary says, yes, uh, what's your question? She says, who's going to beat Paul up today? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was just who Paul was. But I think you can see, Paul said a lot here. And and he wanted to extend to them grace and peace. That's a normal greeting, by the way. Grace and peace to you. And you know, as I think about it, you can't have grace without peace or vice versa. The two go together. And you as Christians, you know that. You know that grace and peace go together. So really, our faith really is all about Jesus. I've often told the kids at our church, your Sunday school teacher asks you a question you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. You'll be right 80% of the time. And really, when I think about it, I don't care what the problem is. I don't care if it's medical. I don't care if it's social or relational. Directly or indirectly, Jesus is still the answer to all of our struggles. Whatever, Jesus is the one. So this is pretty interesting to me that Paul starts out with his greeting and wanted to make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that they knew who Jesus was. Because there was lots of false teachers in the day that were going around and teaching things that Jesus wasn't, didn't really come down in a, in a bodily form or, or that he was just, just only human and all. all that stuff was beginning to surface. This is about 30 years this was actually was written in AD 57 or 58 from Corinth during Paul's third missionary journey. So there was all kinds of ideas about there out there who is this Jesus? Well, Paul wrote his dissertation. And his dissertation is the book of Romans. And he started out by saying, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who this Jesus is. And so he tells them. And that's really for us. If you're living your faith, you're you're fulfilling this to know him and to make him known. If you're making him known, somebody somebody is going to ask you, Why? Why do you do what you do? Why do you work so hard? Why did you care for that person over there? Because they don't deserve it. And you can say, Well, It's because of Jesus, but but I want to warn you, in our society today, they don't like the name Jesus. As soon as you say Jesus, most, not all, but most people will go blind to you. For some reason, they don't like the name Jesus, but some, some will listen because God the Holy Spirit has prepared their hearts to hear that. So think about that. Our faith, our faith, the Christian faith, is all about Jesus. Well, let's read on. Let's see what else uh, Paul told these. I'm taking these in really large chunks. In fact, I use this sermon to introduce the book of Romans. We're, we're, we're in about, next Sunday we'll be in Romans beginning in chapter 3. And uh, so, I'm trying to take about half each chapter. I don't want to spend too long in the book of Romans but I do want to cover it in such a way that our people get it so this is the next section starting in verse 8 Paul says first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world now how many how many of you would like to have that said about you I think we all would look at verse 9 God whom I serve in my spirit and in my preaching and in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. In my prayers at all times, and I pray that now, at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. <laughs> I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So now we learn something else about our faith. Our faith is all about one another. Paul wants to encourage these Roman Christians. I find some things fascinating in this this passage about that. Uh, First of all, their faith is being reported all over the world. I think that probably was a little bit of hyperbole, but maybe not so because Rome was the capital of the world. Probably every thing in the world of that day any social thing happened started in Rome and it probably went outward Christianity was in Rome yes it was small it was beginning to be somewhat persecuted but there was a sizable group that their faith has become known throughout that part of the world you know something we've learned in this assessment First Baptist Church of Sheridan Your faith has become known throughout this part of Wyoming, throughout Sheridan. We have learned from many of you, from many of you that told me, the reason you're in this church is because when you were going through a tough time, you came here and this church went out of its way to care for you. Wow. You are known for that. In fact, one of your elders yesterday, I can't remember which one, Read a report that he had with several of the other pastors from the town. About, he just wanted to ask him, what do you think about First Baptist Church? And it was all positive. And the idea there is that this church, First Baptist Church of Sheridan, really cares for people. That is a good reputation. And that is something I don't think you're going to be losing anytime soon. That's wonderful. Just like the Romans. Your faith is known. And I like that Paul says. Every time I think of you, I'm remembering you in my prayers. He said that to to all all the churches, which is wonderful. And and he he prays that now now maybe at long last, I'm going to be able to come and see you guys because I've never met you. I've never met you. So I know Paul was longing to get there. Why did he want to go see them? Well, he wanted to impart some spiritual gift to them and he wanted to strengthen them and teach them so that, now look at that, so that they would be mutually encouraged. Mutually encouraged. How many of you have ever heard of the group called the Duns? Anybody hear of the Duns? It's just like the word sounds. They're the group of people and it's a growing group. They're done with church. They were heard at church. Everybody in church is hypocrites. I guess they're not. (laughs) So they're done with church. And it's a growing group. But you know what they did? When they stepped outside of the church? If if this carpet here that I'm standing on is inside the church, no encouragement, encouragement. Because don't you encourage one another when you come here on Sunday mornings? Doesn't encouragement happen in your small groups, in your Sunday school classes? Or maybe when you just go out and do an activity together? You know it does. Absolutely. We need to come together to be mutually encouraged. And Paul wanted to go to Rome to mutually encourage these people. What a wonderful thing to have happen for these Romans. These Roman Christians who were still kind of unsure about this whole Christianity thing. And remember, it was two groups. Jews. Jews. And Gentiles who believed in Jesus coming together. It's wonderful when you think about that. So he planned to come to them so they'd mutually encourage and that he could have a harvest among them. The only thing I can think of is that Paul knew that some of the people attending probably weren't believers. They may have called themselves believers, but they weren't. And the apostle Paul was a great evangelist, so he wanted to come and evangelize them. That's, that's wonderful. Paul cared enough for them to to want to care for them at every level. That was the Apostle Paul. That was his heart. But as I look at verse verse 14, you might might see this as kind of confusing. He says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, or barbarians. Now, when we use the word barbarian, we use it negatively, don't we? But, But really, some of your translations might have the word barbarian, but it wasn't that bad of a term. The Greeks were supposed to be the ones that were the more sophisticated ones, and the barbarians were the ones that didn't quite know but I don't think it was as negative as maybe we interpret that term today but Paul is saying look it doesn't matter who you are whether you're considered a Greek or a non-Greek wise or foolish I'm coming to you I'm obligated to come to you to preach the gospel the good news about Jesus to you so our faith really is all about one another you know I I think Paul wanted to be honest with these people. Now, he could have been the happy pastor, smiles on his face all the time, and saying, "You guys are doing just great. There's no problems here. I just want to come and bless you." Which you know, we know there's, there's probably he could do that, or he could have been the mean pastor. I'm coming to you, and boy, we're gonna we're gonna have a hellfire and brimstone sermon today. We're gonna have it every single week. But that wasn't Paul. Paul didn't know these people, but he knew enough about them that he cared for them, and he wanted to go and be a blessing to them because it is all about one another. You see, that's another thing we've learned in this assessment. There's something else that First Baptist Church is known for here. Your church is known for cooperating with the other churches in the community for kingdom purposes, You're known for that. You're known for networking and caring for one another and as a church community doing a lot together to bless people. That's really good to be known as that. Our church in Montrose and our Montrose community is known for that as well. The church is coming together and working together. That's a good thing because most people, what do they say? Most people out there who aren't believers will say, I don't want to be a Christian because you Christians can't get along about anything. But you guys are just proving that. And so are the other Christian churches in Montrose who are working together. In fact, I saw out here, do you know you're actually advertising a program from another church? That's terrible. Let's celebrate recovery. And I guess it's this church right over here, right? Right out the door over there. You can just see this top cornerstone church. I think that's, that's where the celebrate recovery is. Yes, you can, you can celebrate that. You can encourage people to go to that what a wonderful recovery program it is christian-based it's great you can encourage people to do that you can cooperate with that and that's so wonderful i know you also help out and encourage people in the voa program here and i met a guy who had a wonderful experience there and a wonderful experience here that's so encouraging to hear that that christians are going outside their four walls working together to accomplish something that's pretty huge in the kingdom so you you are doing that. Well, I want us to go on. And uh, at this point, I'm going to have you do something. And, and maybe John Crafted did this when you were here. In, in a moment after explain this, I'm going to have you stand. And we're going to read the Word of God together out loud. You can read from your outlines or from the slides with me. But why do I want you to stand? Well, I want you to stand in honor of God's Word. And when I first... Learned Well, when I first saw churches doing this, I, I actually had taken the pastor to Montrose and uh, John Cook. You know John Cook. He was the pastor there prior to me. And every Sunday, he had all the people stand. It didn't matter how long the Bible reading was. They all stood throughout the reading of the Bible in honor of God's word. And that reminded me when I was in seminary, one Friday night we went down to, uh, to the worship service at the, one of the synagogues in, on Alameda in Denver. If you don't know, Sabbath starts on Friday evening at sundown for Jewish people. So that's when they worship, right at the beginning of Sabbath. So we went down there, and we were worshiping in the synagogue. They were singing all sorts of songs. It was really fascinating, really. And then the time came for the word of God to be read out of the Torah. And the rabbi walked over to this beautiful cabinet. And you could see there were, there were windows in it, and there were these, these huge scrolls. I mean, these scrolls were th- at least three feet. And he opened those doors and he pulled those scrolls out and he held it up. And they sang more songs and they praised God. He walked that all around the room. Down every row. It, it was a smaller, it was a smaller room than this. And he put it at the front and, and he laid it down on I don't I guess they, I don't know if they call them pulpits or what, but he laid it down there and he read in the Hebrew and everybody stood while he read it. But you know what else they did? They stood during the homily, which is a sermon. They stood for the whole sermon. I'm not going to make you do that. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating that they would, they would do that in honor of God's word. So would you do that now? The reason I want you to stand is this is the heart and soul of our passage this morning, and it's the heart and soul of the book of Romans. So read with me. Starting at verse 16, let's just read out loud together, and you can read on the slides or from your insert. So we're all on the same page. This is from the New International Version of the Bible. For I am not ashamed of the power, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, go ahead and be seated. Great passage. That's why we base a lot of our theology on this passage. It's it's a wonderful passage. It's actually the theme of the book of Romans. So what do we learn? We learn our faith is all about righteousness found. Now, the next part of Romans, from Romans 118 to the end of the chapter is actually about righteousness, lost. And Paul talks about all the depravity of men. You know, he lists over 21 sins there that he talks about, and he, he chooses only one, only one to actually have special mention. But we know that he only mentioned that one sin in a special way, not because it was any worse than the other sins, it was equal with all the other sins. It was just more of a problem for the Romans. So that's what occurs next is righteousness lost. Maybe later on today or this week, you can read that part of this book of Romans and see exactly what Paul was talking about. But we're staying here. We're staying here about with the heart and soul of the book of Romans. So our faith is all about righteousness found. You might be thinking, well, I never knew we lost our righteousness. Well, we did lose our righteousness, we lost our righteousness in the Garden of Eden. Most of us know the story. Satan tempted Eve. She ate of the forbidden fruit. She tempted Adam. He ate of the forbidden fruit. That brought fall to humanity and the entire creation. We call that the fall. The fall. The theologians call that the fall. So we've been been living in that ever since. All of us are sinners. Paul says later on in Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the Righteousness of God. In Romans 3.10, in quoting Psalm 14.1, he says, basically there's no one righteous, no, not one. So we've got a problem. But the problem is resolved because righteousness, righteousness is found. Now look at verse 16 with me. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. We know Paul, he's going to preach it. He'll preach it in the synagogue, get beat up, and go to the Gentiles. That's just the way he was. I mentioned that earlier. Because it's the power of God that brings what? Salvation. It brings salvation. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, brings salvation. We're all sinners. We need salvation from our sin. Jesus did that. He rescued us from our own sin when he died upon the cross of Calvary. He did that for you, and he did that for me because he knew We couldn't do it ourselves. We could try to do it, but it wouldn't work. We're not righteous enough. It had to be a sinless substitute. and Jesus did that for us. He is righteousness in full. So he did that for you, and and he did that for me. But notice the priority there. It says first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Does that mean God favors Jews? In the next chapter, you'll learn that there's no favoritism with God. So what could that mean? It certainly seems like favoritism with me. Gee, the Jew gets to go first and then the Gentile. It's not that at all. It's just the way God is. God chose the Jewish people through which to reveal himself. There was nothing special about the Jewish people. In fact, in many cases, they were lower than most people. There was nothing special about them. Other than that, God chose them to reveal His grace through them. And He did that in both the Old Testament and the New. So He's not discounting Gentiles, and probably most of us are Gentiles in here. There might be a few Jewish people, but God loves us all. Learn later on in the book of Romans that He actually took the Jews and set them aside to make room for Gentiles coming in. That's you, and that's me if you're Gentiles. It's a wonderful thing. So God loves us all the same. For God so loved the world. We know that, John 3, 16. So we look at this, and it's for everyone who believes. It's the word for faith. It's the word for trust. It's the word for surrender. It isn't just up here. It's down here. It's the total surrender of a person to God. That's what belief is. But then we get into verse 17, and this is really, really where the, where the rubber meets the road. As we look at verse 17, he says, For in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Think about that. All of God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Notice that. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So faith is absolutely important. You can't get around it. We have to have faith in order to believe in Jesus, in order to become a Christian, and have his righteousness. Now, in the NIV here, it says from faith first to last. Other versions, translation from faith, that is, faith to faith. Four times, four times in verse 17, the word faith is used. So what's the big idea for verse 17? Faith, obviously. Faith, it is that important to us. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Wow. That word righteousness, by the way. Righteousness, righteous, justified, all come from the same word. Occurs over 40 times in the book of Romans. So my series for Romans at our church in Montrose is righteousness pursued. Because I think God wants us to pursue righteousness that righteousness he's given us you know that happened when you became a christian think back to the time you became a christian you believed in jesus maybe it was vacation bible school maybe it was in sunday school maybe it was just recently as an adult but nevertheless you gave your life to christ you surrendered to him you trusted in him and at that moment in time do you know what you received you received in full the righteousness of god completely the righteousness of god you say, well, I don't feel like it. Well, I don't feel like it either. <laughs> just talk to my wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> but we've received that. If you're a Christian, you are fully righteous. And God said, that is how God sees you, as a righteous person. And that's important to remember. And he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. I don't know if you know much about the book of Habakkuk. I'm just going to a couple sentences give you a little overview. Habakkuk was a guy who was complaining to God, shaking his fist at God. He said, God, why are so many bad things going on? Why are all the evil people getting all the good things and all the good people are getting nothing but bad? Kind of sounds like today. And He says, I'm going to stand right here on top of this mountain until God gives me an answer. Well, God gave him an answer. <laughs> it starts there and Verse 1 of chapter 2, God starts speaking about the world. And yes, how evil the world is. And then in verse 4, you know, it's interesting. Paul only quotes the second half of verse 4. And then he misquotes it just a little bit. But but this is what he does. The the first half of verse 4 says, God is talking about evil people to Habakkuk. Evil people. Then he contrasts it and says, the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. Do you get the difference there? Paul said the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk says the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. Very similar in wording. Habakkuk, God wanted Habakkuk to know there's a distinction between people who believe in God, they'll, they'll do it by faith, and there'll be people who look and act righteous. They'll be obedient. And people who don't, well, they'll, it'll be shown as well. And the Apostle Paul is quoting that here at the beginning, the beginning of the book of Romans, so that these Roman Christians would know beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus is. They would know for sure who it is they, they worship. Do you know, this is the 500th year of the Reformation. Martin Luther was a monk. He was a Catholic monk. And he was frustrated. He knew he, knew he was a sinner. The more he tried, he, yeah, he could remove himself from physical sin, but he still had sin in here, and he still had sin in here. He was just so frustrated. And one day he was studying the Scriptures, and he ran across this verse, the righteous will live by faith. And it was like the light went on. Have you ever had that happen to you? You read a Scripture, and all of a sudden, boom, it just pops out at you, and you get it. That's what happened to Martin Luther. He got it. And he began, started such a transformation in him, and we know what it finally resulted in, that Martin Luther took those 95 theses and he nailed them to the Wittenberg church door. And that began what's called the Reformation, and in two weeks we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's wonderful. John Wesley, the father of Methodism, was reading this same verse and he said, my heart, my heart was strangely warmed. He actually includes this story in his commentary on the book of Romans. He says, my heart was strangely warmed and I knew that I had to come to God by faith and faith alone in Jesus. Then he knew that's how he can be righteous, only by faith and this is this passage has led Christians throughout the years. My late preaching professor, Haddon Robinson, he told this in this in preaching class one day, he says, Guys, I just want you to know that I was 10 years into my first pastorate, and I was just frustrated, I was angry, I was exercising all kinds of spiritual sweat. When God used this verse in my life, and I realized I I don't have to try so hard anymore. I need to exercise faith, even as a pastor. Even as Haddon was one of the premier preaching pastors we've had in the last 40 years. And he learned that, and it changed his entire ministry. In fact, you know what he said at that time? He said something that's uh, pretty special. He said, I need to faith it through. Did you say that with me? I need to faith it through. I love that. I've never forgot that. He knew he had to faith it through. So maybe you're like Head, and you're sitting here this morning, and you know in your heart, you know that you've been trying to please God through spiritual sweat. And just like Had and Robinson, you know it's not working. You know what you need to do? Take that to God. Take it to God in prayer and faith it through. Maybe there's a sin issue you're you're dealing with. Anybody here not struggle with sin? Nobody's raising their hand yet. We all struggle with sin. We all have issues. Not one of us is perfect. There's no one righteous. No, not one. Think about that. As we look at this, there's another response. I need to accept God's forgiveness for, and you can fill that in your outline if you don't want anybody to see it. Just fill it out on the outline of your heart. I need to accept God's forgiveness for, and then truly mean it. You know, and when you confess something, God also wants you to repent from that. So you confess, and then you repent, which means turning from your sin and turning toward God with that sin. And when you do that, God definitely forgives you. But actually, he forgave you. 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary when Jesus died for you. But all your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. But if there's something you're struggling with, God still wants you to, for, to confess that and repent so you can experience his cleansing. He wants you to have that cleansing and have that feeling. That's a great thing. So you can write that down as well. Or that third response that's on your outlines there. I need to surrender to Jesus as my Lord and Savior and King. Maybe you've never done that. Personally, I like the word surrender. Jesus is not just our Savior. Jesus is not just our Lord. Jesus is our King. And you and I are in his kingdom. So many of the parables, Jesus starts out, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he explains what it's like. Some of them are yet future. Some of those parables haven't yet occurred. But most are right now. See, God wants you. God wants you to be in his kingdom, in his family. And you know, if you're in somebody's kingdom, he's the king and you're the subject. And you surrender what He wants for you. Because in this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, He only wants His best for you. In fact, that's what the reading was about this morning. While we're here on this earth, let's act like we're citizens of heaven. And it will make a difference. Again, during this assessment, we saw so many of you, do that. We've learned your stories. You have wonderful stories. I want to commend you on that. And again, on behalf of Stan, myself, and Ken Dempsey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting us here. I mean, what a what a privilege to meet all of you at First Baptist Church. This has been it's been wonderful, wonderful for me, and I know for Stan and you'll hear from him during the report. It's been great. I'm going to close in prayer and a and and couple things. You can uh, you can think about those commitments that are right there and you can uh, actually write it down and pray prayer and God will make that commitment. I'm also for you that maybe you don't know Jesus. I'm also going to say a prayer for you as well. That prayer will be something similar to this. Like, like God I admit to you that I'm a sinner. And I want to do something about that sin, Lord, but I know I can't. So I believe by faith. I surrender. I surrender to Jesus, to you, God, by faith, so you can take care of my sin. And yet I also want to commit myself to you, God, commit myself to you for the rest of my day so I'll serve you. And if you want to make that commitment, you can say that with me as I close in prayer. I'm going to say those words, very similar words to that. I'm going to say that as I cl- close in prayer this morning, and you can do that. So let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this beautiful church family, this wonderful facility. Most of all, God, we thank you for who you are. Jesus, thank you so much. You left your heavenly home to come down here and live your life in every way as a human being, as a man, and die for us so that we can experience a relationship with you. Thank you for that. Lord, for people who have commitments they're making right now, I just pray that they will make those. And for that person or persons who who want to give their lives over to you, totally surrender their lives to you, I pray they pray this in their heart right now, in the quietness of their own heart. God, oh God, I know. I know I'm a sinner. That pastor's not telling me anything new. I know it. And I also know there's nothing I can do. So God, right now, would you come into my heart? I place all my faith and all my trust and all my belief and surrender to Jesus. I do that, God, because I need that. And God, will you help me to live my life for you now? That my life will be a reflection of you. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name.